0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. morning, everybody. Welcome you uh, back this morning to week number two of our series, uh, True Love. So the purpose of this series is to challenge the notion uh, of love as it is defined by and practiced in our culture today. So last weekend in the first of our 10-week series, I talked about and I spoke on the fact that love is defined by and as a person, and that person is God. God is love. John, who actually, in his first of three pastoral letters, writes to talk about this, and he makes a stunning um, but simple statement. it's really profound. Here it is, First John chapter four, verse 16. "God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. God is love." Now, that is not some new age philosophy. That is old age theology that God is love. The Bible reveals the very nature of God as love. And what's interesting about this verse is we can actually read this in reverse. Love is God. Whoever lives in God lives in love. And love lives in them. Now, I shared last weekend that there are four words in the Greek language that find their way into the New Testament. But only one of those words is exclusively God's love. It is exclusive to God. God is love, but not all love is God. Where God is present and found in all of the loves, not all of the loves include God. In some loves, God is absent. God is ignored, or God is altogether excluded. So not every love is God. But there is one love that is used in the New Testament that exclusively and uniquely belongs to God. No one else can lay claim to it. It's the Greek word agape, or agape, as it may be pronounced in the Greek. That particular word is a unique word from the first century Greek culture that was rarely ever used, that now is ascribed to God, largely throughout the New Testament, that God is love. And here's what's so unique about agape love. It's not that it is an unconditional love. That is actually not what it means. What makes agape unique is that it is not a feelings-based love. It is a love of the will, not an emotional love. That is unique from every other love, that we read about and that we hear about. It is God's love, which is a love that wills to love us. And God's will to love us is described as a first love, a perfect love, and an unfailing love. Listen, there is only, and there can only be one first love. Here's what that means. Every other love, no matter how seemingly ideal it is, is a form of second love. And here's what that means. That means second love is imperfect love, which means at some point it will become failed love. At some point, second love will fail to meet our expectations Second love will let us down emotionally. At some point, second love might leave you feeling like you have been given a broken heart. My family experienced the pain of second love this past week. For several years, my youngest daughter Aubrey and Eric, my son-in-law that are here this morning, Um, had planned to move into adoption. They have two children, our two grandchildren, uh, the Mueller grandchildren. Uh, And instead of having a third biological child, they really felt God's invitation to them and calling to them to move forward with adoption. So two and a half years ago, they got all of their paperwork ready. They selected an adoption agency. And for two and a half years, they've been in a holding pattern, waiting Two weeks ago, they got a call from the adoption agency that their profile had been selected by a birth mom. As you can imagine, our family was just filled with so much optimism that after two and a half years of waiting, this could maybe be the child that we have so longed for. They made arrangements to meet with the birth mom, and they had the meeting about a week and a half ago. Uh, Traveled outside of our community to go to meet this birth mom, and it went extraordinarily well. Several hours of meeting, the birth mom contacted the adoption agency and said, I want Eric and Aubrey to parent my child. They were selected, they were matched. And so our excitement and our joy went to another level as we were anticipating that this is the one that we've all prayed for and longed for. I got a call from Aubrey early on Tuesday morning that she had just gotten a call from the birth mom late the night before that she had gone into emergency labor. She was due on February the 29th, but went in this past week to emergency labor and had the child by cesarean. And so Aubrey and Eric quickly made their arrangements to to go and be at the hospital several hours away to be able to be there with that child and with that birth mom as quickly as they could. We were so excited about this because we really felt that this was again the child that we had been longing for and believing for. Early in the afternoon, uh, Aubrey FaceTimed me. They were in a room with little baby Ann and holding her for four hours. They had her by themselves and they were just so excited, and I was FaceTiming and looking into the eyes and the face of what we believe was our new granddaughter. And it was only a couple of short hours later that Aubrey called, just heartbroken. Um, They had given the baby back to the the nurse. They went downstairs to get a bite to eat. They were coming back up the elevator and um, the social worker met them at the elevator and said, uh, the mother is having second thoughts. And she wants you to leave. As you can imagine, they were... Devastated. As we were. You can't really put it into words. Some of you here know what it's like. Because you've been there. You've experienced a failed adoption. And you know the pain of second love. And how it can just leave you so heartbroken. So utterly devastated, Disappointed how it can crush your heart. These last number of days have been days of healing and grieving for our family. I don't think I had any idea how quickly a heart can get attached to a life. And I know that I experience just a glimpse of what they're experiencing as a couple and as our daughter and son-in-law and and so we, uh, we just ask for your continued prayers for our family as we heal, as we experience um, the support that we know we have by our church family and our immediate family and our extended family, but that God's grace would continue to bring healing to the broken places in our hearts because of second love. Um, let me just say this. I've learned that there's only one remedy to the pain of second love. The only remedy to the pain of second love is returning again and again and again to first love. It is when we fall back into the arms of first love that our feelings of insecurity are met with God's security. It is when we fall back into the arms of first love that the pain of second love that makes us feel rejection, lets us know we're accepted. It is when we fall back into the arms of second love, of first love, from the pain of second love, that we can sense that though we may feel disconnected, we are deeply, deeply connected to a source of love that flows continually toward us. I cannot tell you how significant this is, that I've learned in my own life That that is the only remedy that brings great healing to the brokenness of second love. It is only as we fully accept and metabolize God's full love for us. And it is only when we more deeply integrate God's love into our life that we can in turn love like God loves, which Jesus called a new command. John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you love one another. Here, like so many places in the New Testament, that word, love, is agape, God's love. The new command I give you is God love one another. This new command is new in the sense that it comes with a new standard. And that new standard is just as the father loved his son, Jesus, and just as Jesus has loved us, now we are called in turn to love each other. That's what's new about it. The standard is new. The standard changes everything. And I think before we get to this week's big idea, I want us just to take a few moments and I want to let us more deeply metabolize what this means, God's love for us. I want us to be able to integrate more deeply into our own hearts this morning what it means that God doesn't just love the whole world and God doesn't just love the person sitting next to you God is madly in love with you here this morning. And if you leave here and you hear nothing else I share with you, my prayer is that this truth will more deeply sink into your heart today. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. Long before he laid down the earth's foundation, he had in his mind and settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long before he laid down the earth's foundation, he had us in his mind and settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Here's what I don't want you to ever forget. God made you to love you. God made you to love you. You ever wonder why God created you? What was God's primary motivation? His primary motivation was not that he needed you. It was that he wanted you. God wasn't lonely. God was living in community. But God longed to have an object that he could pour his love into. And so he made us. You We're brought into existence by divine love. And that changes everything about who you are. Everything. It settles so much in our hearts and our lives when we understand that truth that I have been made to be loved by God. That's the primary reason that I exist. When Jesus came, Jesus came to affirm God's nature as love. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about you. God's mind did not need changing. God came to change our mind about him, to let us know who he really was and what he really felt toward us. That was why Jesus came to earth. When Jesus came, he came and he died to prove once and for all that we are worth God's love. That that's how much God loves us. How much God longs for us! I love the uh, the lyrics of the 19th century hymn. Who wrote the hymn and said he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away, and now I sing a brand new song. Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. That actually supports Romans chapter 13, verse eight, which leads us to our big idea today. Let no debt remain outstanding. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has Fulfilled the law. Here's the big idea. Love is a debt owed to God, but paid to others. Love is a debt owed to God, but paid to others. Now, generally speaking, the Bible frowns on debt. Okay, that's another sermon for another service. But, but let me suffice to say at least this this morning. The reason the Bible speaks about debt as a burden is because that's what it is. In, in a sense, debt always encumbers us, it always obligates us, um, it always confines us and constrains us Love actually is personified in Scripture as a master, a cruel master, that actually makes us a slave to the lender. And so the Bible generally frowns upon all debt, but there is one debt that the Bible does not frown upon. Now this time of year for me is a time of year that annually I do two things, that always remind me again of just money and how money affects and impacts our lives. The first thing I do this time of year, every year, is I fill out my tax return. It always reminds me not only of how I'm working for my money, but also it reminds me of how my money's working for me and working for the government. And the second thing I do annually this time of year is I do a financial review where I actually take a look at um, just my portfolio and and accounts and everything in my life that I have and, and asking myself the question, during this time, is and am I handling the resources of God in a way that honors God? I'm always reminded this time of year that debt is both a blessing and can be, but it's also a tremendous burden. When I look at interest paid on my home, it saddens me. So the Bible here makes something clear. That we all have a debt that is always and forever going to remain outstanding. None of us like to think we have debt that cannot be paid off. Some of you here are enjoying the benefits of having all of your debt paid off. And what a freedom it brings. The idea of why we shouldn't be in debt is because God wants us to enjoy our spiritual freedom and the way to enjoy our spiritual freedom is to become more financially free. That's how we do it, one of the ways. But when it comes to love, love is called a debt that will always remain outstanding. It is a continuing debt that we will forever owe. Why, because it's a debt owed to God that we can never repay to God, but we can pay to others. And so the Bible here tells us that whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now, that idea is supported throughout the New Testament, and it, it's a, it's a head scratcher for many of us. Like, how in the world does that, does agape love, does God love fulfill the law? And Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I did come to fulfill it and complete it. James, who's the half brother of Jesus, writes about this in his uh, letter, his epistle, James chapter 2, verse 8 if you are really fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is, if you have an unselfish concern for others and do things for their benefit, you are doing well. The New Testament writers The earliest Christian leaders extrapolated the new command and said, the new command is actually a law. It's a royal law. And what they say about this royal law is that it's really all about the kind of love that Jesus showed to us. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, actually speaks about this concept. And the way he articulates it is so profound. Let me just read it to you. Here's what he says in the book. If you asked 20 people today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, love. You see what has happened A negative term has been substituted for a positive. And this is of more than philosophical importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. It's profound. Because what I think C.S. Lewis is on to here is this, that love is not giving up things. Love actually is going after good things for the sake and the benefit of others. And there's a profound difference. If we're going to fulfill throughout our lifetime this continuing debt of love and we're going to be good stewards with the debt that we carry because of what Jesus did for us, we must not make unselfishness the primary objective. We must make love, which is not about giving up things, it is about going after the right things for the sake and the benefit of others that we are in relationship with. It's always about the sake of others when it comes to God. And so let me give you three characteristics this morning of true love from our standpoint. We talked last weekend about true love as it's defined by God. Now, I wanna talk about true love as we pay this continuing debt of love. What does the scripture teach us about the characteristics of it, the important things that happen as a result of it? There are three I wanna touch on this morning. Here's the first. True love demands authenticity. True love demands authenticity. Romans chapter 12, verse number nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let God love be without hypocrisy. There is a, An idea that has been floating around several different circles for a number of years. In fact, I, for the first time a few weeks back, actually read it in a book, a Christian book, and I was pretty shocked by it. And here's what it said Fake it until you make it. How many of you have ever heard that? Fake it until you make it. Let me tell you, that might be good advice, it is not godly counsel, it isn't godly wisdom. Nowhere are we called in God's, um, in God's universe and in our lives, nowhere are we called or expected to fake it. We are not called to play make-believe when it comes to love. That's actually the idea here when it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Other translations say Let love, love must be sincere. Love must be genuine. Love must be authentic. It must be the real deal. And the etymology of that word hypocrisy is really pretty profound because it comes from first century Greek culture and was used primarily in theater. It was used of stage actors, play actors. Those who were pretending and performing. When Jesus wanted to challenge and bring truth and awareness to those who were of the religious elite of his day, here's what he, he called them. He called them hypocrites. What did he mean? He meant that they were acting. They were pretending. They were posers. They were putting on a mask in order to make what? A good impression On others. And what the Bible says is let love be without hypocrisy. What it means is that our love must not be pretend. Now here's the question. How can you tell if you are being loved authentically? You ever wondered that? How can you tell if someone who says they love you, it's the real deal? Well, let me just borrow some wisdom from our currency here in the United States. They say the best way to know real currency is to get to know fake currency really, really well. And the better you know fake currency, the quicker you can pick up on the real when you see it. So I think the question is this, how can we spot hypocritical love when we see it? In other words, how can we tell when someone else is loving us hypocritically or Even more importantly, how can we tell if we are loving hypocritically? Let me give you two ways. One, hypocritical love always talks out of both sides of its mouth. Hypocritical love says one thing when it's in your presence and another thing when it's not. Hypocritical love is all about making sure that they're saying the right thing, that it's coming out of our mouth, but it's not in the heart. Listen, I've gotten good at spotting and picking up. People will say, we're we're for you, we're behind you, we love you. But feeling like, nah, may not be true. Because I've experienced it before, and so have you. Let me give you a second way I think you can tell. This one's a little harder to detect, but I I think it's, it's helpful to know it. Hypocritical love consciously or unconsciously seeks to make that person look good, actually better than they are. In other words, the idea of hypocritical love is making sure that you're putting your best foot forward, that that person's going to think well of you, rather than making sure that they feel well of themselves. It's actually done consciously but sometimes unconsciously where we seek to impress other people. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what the Bible and Paul the Apostle here is saying. He's saying, listen, when I say this is a new command and I say, Paul says, love without hypocrisy, he's saying, don't fake your way to love. Don't pretend just to love. We are not playing make-believe here. We've got to be people of our word. And I think the only way to love authentically is is to love from the genuineness of a sincere heart that is deeply grateful for the debt that we owe to God. And when we remember the debt we owe to God, making and loving other people becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? So love, true love, demands authenticity. Secondly, true love makes us complete. True love makes us complete. First John 4:12 No one has ever seen God but if we love one another God lives in us and his love is made complete in us Now people in life and I've done it myself often we'll go outside of God to feel complete. We'll look to all kinds of sources to make us feel complete, especially when we're feeling incomplete. When we have a sense and we're not actually resting deeply in God's love, we begin to get unsettled, we begin to feel incomplete, and what do we do? We strive for things. We we go after things that will make us feel complete. We go after possessions, if I can just have that. We go after titles, if I can just earn that position. If I can just get that degree, maybe then I'll feel complete. If I can just have so much money in my net worth, if I can hit a certain level, I'm gonna, I'm gonna feel complete. People go after relationships all the time, thinking that somehow that relationship will complete them. And here's the reality, none of those things will ever make us feel complete because we are only complete in one source. We are only complete in God. And until we we settle that issue and we become complete in God, everything else, every second love will in turn leave us feeling even more devastated. I think this idea of being complete is so critical in our culture today that when people stop to realize what they have gone to to look to feel complete, man, it can be overwhelming. It can be really, really discouraging. can make you really sad. It's good to take inventory of your life and ask yourself that question from time to time. What am I holding on to? What, what have I gripped on to for a sense of completeness? Because as long as you need it, you can't love it. Let me say it again until you no longer need it, you can't love it right the way God intends you to love. Our completeness is in Him. And there's one final thing about true love and the benefit of it that I think is important for us. True love gives us true confidence. True love gives us true confidence. Look at First John chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. We know and we rely on the love God has for us. Here it is again. God is love. Now notice what it says. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Not just any kind of love, but whoever lives in agape, the love of the will, that actually lives that way, God lives in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Here it is. Do you wanna stand before God someday? You wanna feel like when that day comes, you're gonna be able to have confidence before God? Not arrogance, but confidence? The Bible tells us how. In this world, we are like Jesus. In this world, we are like Jesus. Now, I I get it. Being like Jesus in this world is a pretty tall order. Wouldn't you agree? So let me make it simple today. Just one way you can be like Jesus in this world, love like he loved. Love like he loved. Because when we love like he loved, when we love of our will, not of our emotions, when we love through second loves with God's first love, when we love through imperfect love with God's perfect love, when we love through failed love with with unfailing love, we all of a sudden are finding ourselves feeling a sense of confidence that we're living like Jesus. And listen, whether you know it or not here, that is our desire for every one of you here at Grace Crossing Church. If there's only one thing that I could summarize by being what our goal is and our prayer is for every one of you, it's that your life will look a little more like Jesus. Wherever you live, whatever you do, wherever you work, that your life will take on the form of God's love. That's my prayer. It's our desire. We're not hiding anything, all right? There's, there's, there's no hidden agenda here. We want you to be like Jesus. We want people whose hearts fully are surrendered to Jesus, whose hearts are set ablaze to be like him, to live like him. And one of the ways and the most important way we do that is by loving. What we're doing here at Grace Crossing Church this year, our very first Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. Uh, we really believe that that is our pattern and pathway for discipleship here uh, at the larger church-wide level. So we piloted a brand new emotionally healthy discipleship course that we're taking people through. We, we're in our, coming up into our fourth week this coming Tuesday. Got about 35 people here at Grace Crossing Church that are going through our pilot. Um, and this 10-week experience is not about learning more about emotional healthy spirituality, which is the core of, of our vision here at Grace Crossing Church. It's actually integrating it. More deeply into your life. Which is the secret? If we're gonna be spiritually mature people here at Grace Crossing Church, we've gotta become emotionally mature. Those two are inseparable. But here's the goal of it. And I share it with you this morning because it's our goal for every one of you here. The goal of it is not just to get in touch with your emotions. It's not just simply so you'll have self-knowledge. It's, it's not simply so that you'll just become more emotionally honest. All those things are really important and they're gonna help us grow. But the real goal of it is spiritual formation, that you will be formed spiritually. And we simply define spiritual formation as the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. That is the purpose of our growth in spiritual formation. It's the process, lifelong, of being. Your being is more important than your doing. Being conformed and formed into the image of Christ, there is a goal God has in mind for us. When He created us to love us, God had a goal. And that goal was His Son, that we would be like him, that he would be the image of the firstborn of his sons and daughters. And we're doing it for the sake of others so that we can love others really, really well, so that we can love ourselves really, really well, and most importantly, so that we can love God really, really well. So this morning, we have a debt that we owe. It's a continuing debt we'll never pay in full. And out of the gratitude of our heart, my challenge to us this morning is to live with a deep sense of the debt we owe to God but that we pay to others so that we can pay it in a way that lives and loves just like Jesus lived and loved. Thanks for listening.